Welcome to season four, episode two of the Mindset Neuroscience Podcast. In this episode, I interview Michael McQueen for his book called Mind Stuck, Mastering the Art of Changing Minds. And I think it's a really important conversation where we bring up the idea of the science of stubbornness and what it means for people to have made up their mind or to be resistant to changing their mind about things. We talk a lot about different unconscious influences that happen that form our opinions that are way beyond our awareness. And the interview brings up three particular points for me that I think are worth us making more explicit, becoming more aware of, not just on societal levels, but also within our families and our personal relationships. first of those topics is flexibility. And that's something that I've mentioned many times in my other episodes. But the idea of flexibility as its own skill, in a sense, that we consider flexibility as a strategy within itself. That flexibility is something that shows our strength. It shows our agility It shows an ability to monitor and fine-tune, adapt, adjust to live data that's constantly coming in, to new inputs. And this can only strengthen a system. The more information that flows, the more resilient, the more robust a system becomes. And so in order for information to flow in those ways, we need flexibility We need a flexibility of our awareness and where our attentional mechanisms go in terms of what we are looking at and noticing in various situations that allow us to constantly update. The other theme that comes out is complexity and the ability to have mixed feelings, mixed opinions about things. I think this is so unbelievably important for us to model to children and to embody and enhance as a value for ourselves. That complexity allows us to hold more than one thing at once. That we can feel angry and sorrowful. That we can feel nervous and excited. That all of these things can be true. That there's not necessarily only a villain and a victim, but that each person has context and deep circuits that come from many other systems that feed into who they are. And the more we understand all that, the more complex our understanding gets, the better we get at understanding situations and the better we get at finding strategies and solutions for moving forward. I think that's the other piece that comes out within the interview as well is the importance of what we truly value. 
as much as it might feel right to hold an opinion and to be right, and we talk about that in this interview of what that really means, sometimes it's more important to think about what our truest, deepest values are. And I think as complex adaptive systems, which is what we are, progress and adaptability and resilience and thriving and flourishing is something that we all hold dear, we all value. It's important for us to think about how do we get there? How do we get to that place where we are aligned with our value of wanting to flourish and evolve and grow and consistently get better at solving our problems? If we hold that as a value, complexity and flexibility are pillars for that. Without them, we become narrow and rigid and repetitive, and we continuously repeat patterns that are not necessarily what we want at all. They just feel familiar. And we get into that in this interview. And one last piece that comes out as well is that we sometimes think that there is an opinion that is inherently wrong. But what we explore in this interview is the idea that sometimes it's not so much that it's completely wrong, but rather incomplete. That so many of our thoughts, our opinions, our stances, our positions, our tendencies are based on incomplete information. And it basically is always true because there's no possibility for our conscious mind and even many of our unconscious drives to have incorporated all of the input, all of the data possible for every situation. So we have to know that we are working with imperfect information at all times. So there is always room for more. There's always room for more understanding, more complexity. And while that might sound daunting, it might sound as though if I allow in more information and more complexity, I'll never get to some sort of decision or opinion The truth of the matter is, is that all of our thought action repertoires, all of our decision making, everything that does truly align with our desire for growth is constantly in flux, is constantly shifting and always requires some capacity to flex, pivot, shift, adapt, adjust. That is life. Life is dynamic, it's complex and it's ever-changing. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. I think it is so powerful for us to talk about this idea of changing minds, our own minds, and for us to embrace that process. It's a sign of growth. It's a sign of strength when we have a capacity to change our mind and update something because we've acquired new information. So I really want to just enhance that message as we move into this conversation that sometimes it's as though we demonize this ability or this tendency a person might have to change their mind. And while consistency, of course, is important, and there are certain aspects of how we function that need to be structured in some way and systematized, I think there's room and there's space for us to really applaud and highlight and embrace an ability to update and shift our minds and to change our opinions. So these are some of the themes that come out in my conversation with Michael McQueen, and I hope you enjoy it.
thank you so much, Michael, for coming onto the show. It's an honor to have you. And your book is very exciting. And I think a very important topic for all of us to be thinking about more explicitly. So thanks for being here. It's a pleasure. Thanks for making the time. I'd love for you to just give a quick overview of maybe even why you felt compelled to write this book and some of, some of the ideas that are behind it. Yeah, well, at the core, this is a book really all about why we as humans are stubborn. And you know, we've always been, I guess, bent towards being rigid in our thinking because it's just one of the things that makes us human. But the fact, the fact that we are increasingly more stubborn, more polarized, more tribalized than ever, and you see that just in you know, society broadly, particularly around political issues. But I think that the, I guess the trigger for me as to why I wrote this book was that I was seeing the same dynamics occurring with my clients. So I've spent mm. 20 years basically helping brands, organizations, be they nonprofits, education groups, right through to the Fortune 500 who are trying to figure out basically how to gear up for the future. You know, to, yeah. a lot of my work has been identifying what are the trends or the patterns that are forming we need to get ready for now before they become disruptions. And so mm. I'd spend all this time working with industries or clients, helping them map out a strategic path for the future. And what I realized over the years is that was just not enough. And so you can work with a leadership team around change and what needs to change and how they need to adapt and grow. But if they can't bring people along the journey of change, then it's all for nothing. You know, like in, unless you can change the hearts and minds of people you're trying to lead. And it's not just leaders who are trying to change the perspectives of others. It's often the case of trying to influence up. You know, I remember vividly having a conversation with a woman backstage, uh, back of the, the conference room at an event here in Sydney. And I'd spoken at this big industry association conference and she came up to me during the lunch break and said, you know, I'm so with you. I can see the changes that are coming. And if we don't change in my organization, we're out of business in like five mm -hmm. or six years. Yeah. And she said, my biggest challenge is I cannot get my executive team on board. Like I've tried to, I've tried to impress them, motivate them, compel them, argue them into change. And yet they're so stubborn about how they think things should run. Mm -hmm. What do I do? And I just mm -hmm. remember feeling at a loss, like, you know, I'm not quite sure how to guide you in that because all the things you've done were all the things we're told to do, but they hadn't worked. And so this mm -hmm. book was really an attempt to figure out where should it come up again and ask me a question, that's that same question. I sort of know how to help or equip her. actually see a lot of parallels in people's personal lives. This, this concept, which it, it's not even necessarily that there's this formula of what to change into, it's just to make change more accessible, make the ability to, uh, to change our mind, to stay open, just a little more, just something that we can tap into more readily and in effective ways. And yeah. how I see this also play out is on this personal level where people are working in families or relationships. There's a certain kind of familiarity, and you've touched on this in the book, familiarity that seems right, but familiarity does not always mean healthy or adaptive. Familiarity sometimes means that's just the way it's always been. Whether we're talking about dynamics in, you know, whether we're coaches, therapists, teachers, working with students, or in, in our own relationships and our own families, 
there's a lot of familiarity that doesn't necessarily mean it's right or accurate. So I was very uh, drawn, drawn to the book as well. Um, And, you know, a big piece of what I think is very important is for us to understand how much data we're missing in forming our reactions, our responses, our decisions. Yeah. Uh, can you touch a, a little more on that too? Because I know you brought that yeah. up. Well, and it can be a couple of things that are, are meaning our scope is narrow. And I think as humans, we all fall victim to that. You know, we tend to favor the things that, that we agree with. You know, in fact, there was a, a piece of research done that looked at this question of how much time we spend reading, let's say, a news article that we already agree with. We will spend 36% more time reading stuff that aligns with our beliefs. Whereas if we get a few paragraphs in and we're like, I'm not on the same page with this person, even if like consciously we'd like to think we're open-minded and open to different views, it's just, it's uncomfortable. You know, the human mind would rather rather feel right than be right. And there there is a great feeling about feeling like we are in the right and we've got it figured out. So, you know, as humans, we we narrow the scope for that reason. The other thing that's narrowing the scope is that most of our information now comes digitally. And so, You know, whereas in the past, you might get a magazine subscription to say, let's say the Scientific American or the Economist or whatever it was, and you would read a fairly large cross-section even within that publication. Now, most of us, particularly the, like the younger generation, you look at the statistics around where they get their news from. It's, it's Instagram. It's TikTok. Like, and it's, it's online and particularly social media platforms where, and I mean, this is no great new revelation. We know this, that the algorithms basically spit up for you what it is that I think you already agree with what you want to read because that's what gets our attention and that's what holds our attention, keeps us in the app or on the screen. And that's what then creates these echo chambers where you only ever see content that agrees with what you've already searched for or the pages you already like and follow. And therefore, it's, it's, it's only natural to develop this almost this balkanized belief that everyone in my little tribe who thinks like I do, who's got my views my paradigm around politics or you know, social trends or morality, that what we think is right, because everything I keep reading keeps telling me that we are. And you're not exposed to views that are outside of that sphere of influence. And so you know, from a family dynamics perspective, this might work fine when you've got, say, young kids. So you've got a, a, a worldview or political assumption set that works for you because maybe both the parents are in the same boat, you read the same things, you subscribe to the same views. And then that uncomfortable reality of your kids hitting teenage years, and then they bring into the house their own ideas, the stuff they're reading and thinking. And you've now got a generation gap, but often you've got a knowledge gap too, because they're dipping into sources of info that you may be entirely unfamiliar with or uncomfortable with. And then in that moment, when relationship matters most, like 13, 14, 15 years of age, how do you respond? Like, how do you stay open-minded, stay true to who you are and what you believe and what you think is valuable, but also... Have that degree of intellectual humility where you can engage in conversations and just consider out loud different ideas. And that's so often, and we see this play out so often, you would see it, certainly I imagine, where this is where the schisms begin to form and often relationships get fractured, which to me is the greatest tragedy. If you, if you lose the relationship because of an ideology, then, then there's an issue there. I think um, Andy Stanley, who's a, a brilliant leadership expert based there in the state, put, States, put it well, he said, in any relationship, when one party wins, the relationship loses. And so whether you're talking intimate relationships, child relationships, professional relationships, if your goal is simply to win, then it's never going to go well for you. So I think in maintaining intellectual humility, that is honestly part of the game.
makes me think of the word psychological safety. Yeah. Um, it that ends up missing. So that ends up when we are so geared towards having that narrow range of detail and information that we are allowing into our own system. Correct. We are, yeah, yeah, we are breaking psychological safety because to me, the the idea of that is that there's a free flow of information. And I I like to look look at us as we are systems and we Mm. are sending vibrations out and there's stuff that's happening or, you know, our, our brains are creating different algorithms and we want to put that information out there. The better it flows, the more input the other system gets and then can kind of process and send back. Yeah. And to me, that's kind of a sense of that's what relationships, you know, healthy relationships have. There, there is this yeah. ability to have a, a beautiful free flow of information. And yeah. it's funny because that's actually what systems resilience requires. It requires yeah. open feedback, um, you know, information flows. As soon as there's a cutting off of information, you've robbed the system of data that it needs to be truly, truly adaptive and to be thriving and creating like new algorithms based on live time stuff that's evolving and emerging. That's so true. And I think too, I mean, to your point, psychological safety, and you hear this often thrown around in the board of business. We talk about that a lot. Um, And Amy Edmondson's work has been brilliant in terms of changing the culture of teams around psychological safety in the workplace. But if you look at what stifles that, now, what is it that stops us having that sense of safety? And typically, it's the very same things that cause us to be stubborn. Things like fear, being intimidated by difference and diversity of views. You know, those are the things that cause a, a lack of psychological safety. I, I won't speak up in a team if I feel like in doing so, I'll be shamed or embarrassed or shunned. And I think the interesting thing is if you look at so many of the emotions that underpin stubbornness, they're somewhat related. There is that sense of fear, the fear of the unknown, the fear of what I often refer to in the book is this, the fear of unraveling. This idea of if I reconsider one belief, it's like pulling that thread. What else is there that I've assumed to be true that might not be true? And that's a really unsettling thing for all of us just as human beings. So when you're asking people to change their minds or consider a different perspective, one of the great things we've got to create is safety an ability to reconsider without the potential fear of being embarrassed or ashamed or, or, and you see this so often play out where people essentially back others into a corner. And the only way to get themselves out of that corner is to raise the raise the white flag of surrender and say, you know what? I was wrong. You are right. You know, and essentially we, we force people to have to admit they're an idiot in order to, to admit they might've been wrong. And of course, no one wants to admit they're an idiot. There's a great fear and a, a lack of of dignity associated with that. And so even the way we approach these conversations, if there's going to be psychological safety, we've got to give people that that safety that allows them to save face um, as they're reconsidering their ideas and perspectives. important to bring up. I see it in almost both sides of this where we also, I think, need, uh, as we're discussing this topic, to create a sense of safety for people who are stubborn. The way I like to look at it is, you know, because otherwise we get into maybe a righteous place of I'm the open-minded one and you are being stubborn because <laughs> you're not changing your mind, right? Yeah. And yeah. so I feel like there's, you know, 
one, and, and I know you touched on this as well in your book, talking about, um, I think, not helping people not feel or fear such a loss if yeah. they do let go of an idea. And so I think yeah. that also there's something about when someone want, you know, is continuing to be stubborn and continuing to dig their heels in, that we also have a way to embrace that as well. That yeah. there is there is still some value in it. There's value in you know sticking to your guns. Um, but the way I like the way I like to often do this to try and help make things so it doesn't seem so demonized in this very human way that we do this is yeah. to get go back to almost like a molecular uh, molecular level where we're much more united in this. And the way I see that is um, it's about energy conservation. Uh, the brain is an energy conserving machine. (laughs) It doesn't want to expend when it doesn't know what that's going to give it. So it's created algorithms based on what it's already experienced, what has worked to Mm. maintain like the things that you've touched on your book and identity, you know, especially social grouping, the safety of that, um, your status as into like whether you're approved of or not. So it's energy conserving and and that's really its goal. It's always trying to conserve energy and anything new, anything unfamiliar is a much higher expenditure of energy with no absolute understanding or knowing of what the benefit will be for that. Yes. It's interesting too. One of the things I wanted to look at the book and I wanted to, I preface this with the fact that I'm not a neuroscientist. I am just fascinated with the research, particularly in the last five to seven years, there's been a lot happen in this space in the last few years. So I've tried to read really deeply around what actually happens cognitively in terms of our mental hardware when it comes to being stubborn or thinking or rethinking. Why do we find that hard? What actually happens in our brains, but not all, not just our brains, but our bodies. So much of stubbornness is rooted in now that, like that, even that brain-gut connection, which I find is just absolutely fascinating. And I know you've spoken about it on previous episodes. It's that so many of our, our our sense of like what's right and what's wrong, we don't even know why we think that. We've just got this deep gut feel about it, and so therefore, if you want to persuade someone to think differently, you can't ignore that. Like there's all these th- all these dynamics at play that cause people to think what they think and how they think. And so in the book, and, and it's always tricky, and you probably find this as well. You, you want to try and take complex things and make them simple, but not simplistic to the point where they don't even have any bearing on reality anymore. And that's that's always, I find as a writer, the hardest thing is how do you make these enormously complex things very simple without overstepping the mark? And so in the book, what I boil it down to is the idea that in basically our brains, and I use the word mind because the mind is bigger than the brain. It encompasses all of our thinking apparatus. But if you just use that word for a moment, that when we have the, the two minds that we're in at any given moment, the first I call the inquiring mind, which is that part of the frontal lobe, which does require a lot of energy, self-control. It's slow to work. And Daniel Kahneman's book picked up on this in great detail. So the inquiring mind is logical and linear and rational and all the rest of it. It can do all those things that we'd like to think as humans we're really good at, which is pause and really think carefully and critically. The challenge is we only use our inquiring mind for between 5 and 10% of our decision-making and perception formation. And so where does most of our thinking happen? Where does stubbornness tend to reside? It's in a part of the brain I call the instinctive mind, which is sort of grouped loosely around, you know, particularly the limbic system, these very fight and flight tribal instinct parts of the brain. And so the challenge, if you want to change someone's mind, is you've got to start with the instinctive mind rather than the inquiring. And yet most of us, you think about how, for instance, governments try and encourage us to 
consider change, whether it's not smoking or exercising more frequently or whatever it is, they tend to appeal to the inquiring mind. They give data and evidence and statistics, and most of us do the same thing without realizing the inquiring mind is not the part of the mind that needs to be persuaded. It's the instinctive mind. And so then the question is, what works there? Because that's the part of the, to the part of the brain or the mind that actually is, is often the most obstinate. And the harder you push, the more it'll dig its heels in. Um, it's very, very resistant to anything that feels like pressure or a lack of agency or control. And so that's where it's a bit of, it's a tricky situation of how do you persuade without making the brain feel like it's, it's got to get on the defensive. I like that we're bringing in the body and the viscera, the visceral feelings into this because, you know, like it, and it it brings up a few things that I've gotten, you know, questioned on before as well. Intuition serves a purpose and there is some incredible intelligence behind it. Um, What's interesting. And I also like that you bring up Daniel Kahneman with the, the fast thinking and the slow thinking is that, there, there is a level of, of intuition, of gut feeling and instinct that I think is really important for us to trust. Um, yeah. Where I see that there's limitations to it is sometimes I think we have reflexive types of feelings that are based on some of these things where the, we have attentional mechanisms that are very geared towards what has happened in the past. They're very predictive. And so if we've come from, you know, like I like to kind of bring it back to our families as well, because I think what happens in our families extends into how things happen in society. But if there's certain things that are very familiar in terms of how information flowed, that we, our attentional mechanisms tend to, to focus in on that and narrow in. And so it feels like an instinct. And, and so there, there is intelligence behind it, but sometimes it's so based on past stuff that it's not actually related to now and the biggest place that we can really explore this topic is in the idea of when things feel really threatening but our life is not actually in danger and (laughs) you know and and that that comes up over and over and over again in neuroscience and all that but I think it's still so important for us to talk about because Mm. social rejection as much as there's evolutionary roots into how important that is, um, you know, and, and, and I would even argue that when things aren't going well socially, when we're very little, there is life-threatening consequences to that. Yeah. And so there yeah. is an, an, an embedding of when things socially are not good, when someone's not tuned into me, when they're turning away, when something's not clicking, there is something very threatening about that when we're very little. Uh, yes, because that's what we have to work with. We don't have another way to resort to another tribe. We can't move homes when we're an infant. Because of that, I think like we have this deep wiring that says when things are socially not going well for me, when my status is threatened, when things are I'm not being approved of, when people are turning or looking a certain way that is disapproving of me, it hits us so deep and in such mm. primal life-threatening ways and that's when it becomes maladaptive. That's when yeah. now we, we do have to question those instincts because yeah. they're yeah. primal and they're deep, but they're irrelevant in most social situations that we're in when we're having a conversation online or having yeah. a conversation with a person. Yeah. 
the other thing I'd add to that is so often our instincts, if we're not careful, can be expressions of prejudice. You know, there are things that just feel right to you because deep down there is an assumption about people of a certain ethnic background or socioeconomic background or cultural background, people that you do trust or don't trust. You don't even know why it's there. This is why, you know, there's this notion of, you know, unconscious bias is such an important thing to have front of mind. If you're just trusting your gut, sometimes our gut is incredibly, incredibly prejudiced and bigoted. And we don't even know that. We're not even aware of that until you actually speak it out and go, gosh, I can't believe I, I thought that, but I'd never actually vocalized it before. And so the other thing I would also encourage people when it comes to, to relying on particularly those deep-seated instincts is take it to its logical conclusion. Like, where is this going to leave you? Is this going to lead you or leave you more open, more curious, more connected to others or not? You know, because I think often that there's two voices that are speaking loudly in the unconscious, it's love or it's fear. And just try and figure out which one's speaking. Um, and if, if there is that sense of fear, and like you say, it's not a fear that's grounded in anything that's actually related to our, our genuine safety, there might be something you need to just, just check, like dig a little bit further. Like what, what's that about? And is that actually a fear that is unfounded or holding me back or perhaps just not a reflection of reality and truth? Yeah, I, that's that's also a really good point. And where I where I get resistance on some of these things is um, that if we encourage people to be open and compassionate, uh, that's when that's when the guardrails really start to come up because you know there is this idea and and there's truth to it, which is that sometimes we're overly compassionate to somebody who is trying to do us harm whether yeah, psychologically, yeah. right, um, in those kinds of, you know, different kinds of relationships, interactions. So how I like to look at it, you know, to, to, cha- to change some of that wording in some ways so that people can see another way that this can be beneficial is it doesn't always mean gentle and sweet, and it doesn't always have to look like that, but it looks mm. open and more yep. accurate. And so if we are in a sense of fear and it's not life-threatening in that moment, and, you know, and it's important for us to keep distinguishing that as well, but Mm. if it's a social interaction where the the worst case scenario is rejection or, you know, whatever, you know, separation of some sort, it's not a life threat in that moment. And so if we're going into a fear-based state, like you're saying, we are, you know, our system is going into, it's, it's shunting off, it's conserving blood flow to those more complex open awareness types of, you know, circuits. So we are now, we are now getting narrow and narrow in our focus. And there's a lot of studies that show that, that when we're in negative state, you know, the attention narrows. So we're robbing input in those situations that could actually help change the trajectory of that situation. Because if we, let's say, are getting into a fear-based mode and that's defensive, and now all of a sudden we don't know, but our eyes, our eye muscles are actually now gearing towards how do, where am I seeing the threat? Not, am I seeing a threat? Wow. Where am I seeing it? And there's very specific regions of the face that are generally the indicator of that. So we don't even know on this unconscious level that our eye muscles are actually now changing how they're working in order to focus on something. And so now, if you think about that way, right, it's like I'm, we're having something happen. Now I've gone into defense mode. Eye muscles and even ear muscles change. Um, my vocal tension changes as well. Mm-hmm. So now I'm focused on that. And that person who I am now perceiving as a threat, they might actually be, there might be something very 
pained or sorrowful or there's some other layer that you have yes. not in any way recognized because you've gone into that. So now I've put out my spikes to protect, but that person might actually, who knows what, right? Have this deep like sorrow about something or sadness yeah. or pain or fear. I have now robbed my actual sensors from even picking that up. And so now we are going to go into a, a cycle that is very different than if I could somehow, you know, have this shift, which is what we're talking about, where I try to stay open to the possibility of something else happening here, trying yep. to stay open that will raise up the attentional circuits and even how my eyes operate. I might look in their eyes a little more deeply. I might get information now that can totally change this. And again, just for some people who are still very afraid of being overly compassionate, and I understand that, it doesn't necessarily, again, it doesn't mean that you're all of a sudden going to be like, oh, we're best friends now. Yes, I love you. It might just look like, oh, I never saw that perspective. Yeah. There's actually this. I now have new information of how I can speak in a, maybe even a persuasive way for this person. Yes. Right. Uh, and to me, it's funny you use the word compassionate. I mean, that's certainly often the end result of that. And that, being overly compassionate even. To me, the word I like to encourage people to consider is curious. How do you get to a point where you can stay? You can be curious. So if someone's even acting in quite a, an aggressive or toxic way in an interaction, and you see that play out often, you're having a discussion or a debate, things get heated. Something really powerful is to stop and step back and go, I'm so curious. You don't, even, you don't have to say this out loud. I wonder what's going on for them. Like, I wonder what happened for them. I wonder why they're so passionate about this. And what it means is now it's not about you feeling it's about it, that it's about you, then they're attacking you. It separates you and your ego a little bit from the conversation, allows you to see them with a degree of compassion, but more just curiosity, intrigue. Like what a fascinating thing to have someone who's so worked up about something that actually probably in the scheme of things doesn't matter all that much. And I think what I love about what you've just shared there, and it's so true, is that it, it humanizes people. And one of the great dangers, I think, for all of us when you're trying to understand others, engage with others, persuade others, is if we're not careful, we can very easily simplify, oversimplify humanity. And one of the terms I use in the book is this idea of the 2D trap, where we make people two-dimensional. And so those who are from our side, we deify. They can do no wrong. They're awesome. You know, there's almost this purity versus evil dichotomy that's set up. And then the other side, anyone from the other side is not de deified, they're demonized. It's almost like they can do no right. Okay. And it's interesting how even the language we use often around political and social things today is it's not good and bad. It's not even right and wrong. It's like good and evil. It's like pure and evil. And so those from the other side of the political divide, it's almost like we can't even stand to speak to them because we just see them as, as repulsive or deplorable or despicable. All these things are like, well, actually, they're just another human being. And we're also complex and nuanced. And I think when we oversimplify things, and by the way, our leaders love this. Our leaders pull the lever of fear and disgust really well, because the moment you're fearful or disgusted, if they can get you to feel that toward the other side, even if it's a fictitious enemy, you know, a paper tiger, then what they can do is they can rally you behind them and support because they're the ones that are going to protect you and fight for you. And so we've got to be so careful that some of these very instinctive things that our brains do 
cause us to oversimplify humans, it means we can't meet in the middle. Our minds change in the middle when we can actually engage with others, talk, listen, connect. And what I loved in the research for the book was coming across a lot of the really valuable work that's been done around how do you build the sort of trust required to be able to persuade and influence others. And so much of that is about being physically together. The moment you're online and you're going back and forth and you see this with the online trolls, you know, no fruitful conversation happens in a, in a social media echo chamber. But if you get face to face, you hear someone's voice, you get to know their story. You realize that they are complex and nuanced. You really listen to them. That's when fruitful human interactions happen. And yet, sadly, we in our modern era tend to spend so much time in our respective trenches, lobbing grenades at the other side and wondering why we're not making any progress. huge to bring up to the online versus in person, just even in terms of how much online requires verbal exchanges. So it's the words yeah. and the words are, we, a lot of people don't realize how powerful words can be. And, you know, going back to your other point of when we are dichotomy, like really, um, what do you call it? Stereotyping, I guess you could say. Yes. People yeah. putting into groups. Language is such a powerful part of that. And there's been studies like Carol Dweck, who is the person who you know coined the phrase yes. growth mindset. Her original, a lot of her earlier research was actually about um, essentialist thinking uh, or generic language versus individuated. And, and that's actually the roots of where the growth mindset came from, which is that when they used pluralized generic language, so dolphins have fat under their belly, for example, or they use boys or girls or kids, adults, whatever it is, um, it's a way of organizing our world. So we do need it. Um, and I think over 60% of the language kids hear before the age of seven is generic. So it's pluralized. So it's a very high amount. And it helps to organize the world because otherwise we would be like, is that a dog? Is that a dog? You know, like it, we, we would, it would be take too much information, right? To try and like yeah. organize things. So the, that the generic language is helpful, but what it ends up doing is it actually leads the, especially young brains, but in brains in general to create like a deduction. And it creates this essentialist theory, which is that if it's pluralized, it means it's inherent. Because it's the essence of that, whatever that category is. So as soon as you have a plural and then an adjective or an activity, it's inherent and an inherent trait to that. So it's therefore unchangeable. And wow, yes. when, yeah, right. And so if it's unchangeable, then it's so much easier to just say they are all like that. Yep. And there's yep. no point in even interacting because if they are like that, then, you know, so they did it with so many cool uh, different experiments where they had like, I'm going to mess up the words, but the flirps and the zuzies or, and they uh -huh. had, you know, and they were just using different language like that. And so individuated language, although much more expensive for our system, uh, is what helps people see that it is more that person and that context that creates the behavior wow. rather than something yes. inherent. Yep. So, you know, and I think that's where, first of all, being online, I think becomes very easy to just use words all the time. And we yep. don't know that 
so many of the words we're using are generic or essentialist in nature. We're not necessarily talking about one person's very specific story. Um, so I think being in person is, is part of, partly helpful for that. And yes. yeah. And so it just, you know, I think you have more in your book on that too, of just this um, not, uh, uh, or another word that came to mind as you were saying is it's lack of complexity. So yep. it's not allowing for mixed feelings because that's the other thing too. And, and this is in child development research that it's very important for adults to model uh, mixed feelings to kids because mm. it's very easy to say, I hate you in this moment, or I yeah, love yeah. you, <laughs> um, or this is so good, but there can always be mixed feelings. And we need to have a little more allowance for that. And like with yeah. someone we disagree with, like, I'm feeling really angry at you at the moment for saying that, but yeah. I can still stay open. Like there, there can be a mix, a complexity of that. I love that because it is, I mean, that is humanity. That is all of us. And the moment you reduce things down to be too simple, it leaves us vulnerable to, you know, really simplistic thinking. And that never gets us anywhere. I think that there's a lot of great research around the value of actually just hearing someone's voice. And so, you know, the written word can be great and the pen is mightier than the sword, but there's danger in the written word. In the written word, and you see this so often, uh, you probably can picture people like this. I certainly can. Those who online are so full of vitriol and so mean-spirited and judgmental. Then you meet them in real life. And you're like, you're actually a really lovely person. Like, how does this work? This is like two entirely different personas. And so we've got to be very mindful that often online, you're hearing a different tone in what people write than what they actually represent. Also, and this is the other thing about online, is you don't get a complex, nuanced view because you get extremes. I mean, most people who share strong views online have an extreme view. If it's a nuanced, moderate view, it's almost like it's too boring to share. I won't speak up. I mean, the vast bulk of people across any ideological spectrum of any issue are silent. They're not saying anything. They're not commenting. They're not sharing posts. They're just, they may be reading, they're curious, they're interested, but they're in the middle. And so if you just read what's online, it's easy to assume that actually everyone is completely polarized. Whereas actually, while there is that sense of polarization, people are much, much far stronger in, in terms of like which camp they're in and we're forced almost to choose which camp are you for us or against us. There's not a lot of permission given for that middle ground now. Actually, when you strip all that away, a lot of people still are actually quite in the middle, but they don't speak up. There's a fear of speaking up. And so I think yeah. even just to be mindful of that, like it just if what you see online is what you assume a reality is, you're getting a very... Um, one-dimensional view of reality online. It's it's not complex and nuanced and it's not accurate. Yeah, and I've even seen uh, complexity be shamed. That if someone says, yeah. I see that point of view, but I also see this point of view, that that's when yep. they, some of those people can get very attached because they've said, I'm not totally part of your group and I'm not part of this group. Um, well, yeah, I mean, and, you see it play out yeah. with so many social issues right now. You'll have, let's say, the Israel-Gaza issue. You'll have people who go, I feel compassion for both. And I really, I want to see both sides come to a fruitful conclusion in this, in this conflict. And if you have a nuanced view like that, you're like you say, you'll get attacked by people from either side who want you to just be one or the other. And it's almost like if you can't pick one side, you're, you're evil because you're, you're not for us. It's like, wow. Right. But how, I mean, every parent for their child, what would they wish for their child? They would wish their child is 
open and curious and can see multiple sides and ask questions. And this is what we want for our kids. And yet, are we modeling it as parents? And I think right. that's the other thing we've got to be super mindful of is the very things we want our kids to do. Sometimes we don't do ourselves. We, we think we've graduated from that stage of life and now we can be you know, very rigid and firm about our view. I'm like, well, yes, you can to an extent because you've had more life, you've read more things, you've heard more things. But at the same time, let's never get to the point where we can't ask questions, where we think we've got it all figured out. I mean, the old saying yeah. is so true. The moment you think you've made it, you've passed it. And yeah. so for any of us, you know, are we willing to consistently upgrade our beliefs and assumptions even as we get older? Because yeah. that not only just keeps us in that posture of humility, but it, it's modeling to our kids or the next generation the very things we're going to want them to do. Yeah, and, and that brings up also what the point of it is. You know, so some people might yeah. even be like, well, what's, yeah, but why? <laughs> uh, I, I'm fine just being a part of my group identity. I, I like that. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, the thing is, is that we are in a very high-paced pa- high uh, switching of of conditions that are happening faster and yeah. faster and faster now. Um, partly, you know, socially that we are the amount of switching of code switching of of different environment switching that we're doing um, online and in person is making it so that we have to get better at adaptation and yeah. and at at getting better at figuring out solutions because things are, you know, happening so fast that if we don't have the kind of speed, speed of like thinking and speed is maybe the wrong word, but um, efficiency, I guess you could say and adaptability to go with it, we are going to get stuck in not Mm. having solutions. And so if we're focused more on identity, and I know that's one of the the eyes you have in your book, we're focused more on the, on that and not on what is the progress, though. What is the opening of channels for something new to happen? Yep. To me, that's what the point of this is. Like, it, it's not just a feel-good thing. It's that if we can have a little more complexity, model complexity to the younger generations, to model flexibility of thought, we we become more intelligent. And that yep. is, you know, across the board. That and not intelligence in a in a certain way. It's Intelligence that has to do with divergent thinking, flexibility, yeah. ideational fluency, which is the ability yep. to come up with ideas, experiment, prototype, you know, and do all that. We need that. We need that for surviving our planet, just making progress. I love that. I think the, the, the question that I'm finding most interesting when it comes up in these sort of interviews is, um, what have I changed my mind about? And I love that question because it's like, it's a very, it's modeling the very thing that not just this book, but I think so many of us are keen to do as we, as we go through life is consistently be willing to upgrade our beliefs and assumptions. And I think yeah. there's something very leveling about that, that in all of us, if you look at the last three to six months and they're like, there's nothing I've changed my mind about. That, that's a red flag. That's got to be something like, okay, well, I've just not either spent enough time thinking, reflecting, being curious, or maybe I'm just surrounding myself with people who already agree with me and reading the stuff that I agree with, which of course means that you are in an echo chamber, which I mean, an echo chamber is super comfortable. And it also means you're, you're not in a place where you're going to learn and often learn the sort of things required to grow and stay at the cutting edge over time. 
Yeah, I think we, as we wrap up, kind of circles back to this idea of energy conservation, that yeah. that's what our brains do. And so this applies to so many aspects of our life that we also, on a very personal level, we can be very stubborn about ourselves and yeah. even what we're capable of and what our past has been and what our future could look like. So that, that's also a beautiful place where people can maybe even start if it feels too much to think about how to do it elsewhere. You can even think about in your in your own mind that there are theories that you are holding on to about who you are that what you know what actually you think really matters to you but maybe doesn't or and that can be I want to you know stick to an idea that's more important to me being right is more important than feeling connected Um, and these are all theories that we have right and so this idea of kind of stubbornness and inflexible thinking I think we can think about ourselves and know that because we are energy conserving systems, uh, we will generally always go back to our patterns, our patterns yeah. that are our default. And the issue with patterns is that although they're energy conserving and so they generally feel right and good and comfortable, um, they do keep us in patterns. And so because they're predictive and so they narrow and so they kind of keep us in self-fulfilling prophecies in a sense, very repetitive yes. cycles. So if there's anyone out there that wants to just feel like something could maybe feel different in their life in some way, it's openness. It's getting, it won't feel right to, to question that at first. It's not going to feel good in a Mm -hmm. sense. It will feel like some effort. Um, But that it's the only way we can get out of those patterns is we have to apply some of that effort because it's, it's going to require circuits that require more energy. Just like you yeah. said in the, in the beginning, it does require that kind of special kind of energy. So it's it's worth thinking about, but it's not easy. But we're universal; like we all we all have that in common as humans. Yeah, hundred percent. You know, doing unfamiliar things always feels hard, and yeah. hard is something we don't like in a very <laughs> natural way. <laughs> That's um, true. Yeah. Anything, and the only thing I would add to that is that um, give yourself some grace. The reality is if there are things that you need to change your mind about, that when you step back and go, I don't even know how I arrived at that view or, you know, that view just feels so comfortable because it's what I've thought for so long. The reality is you may need to change your view, not because you were wrong in the past, but because things have changed. You have changed. You have grown. And so there's actually no, there's no shame or embarrassment in changing your mind. And I think yeah, that's the other I love thing. That. We tend to have this assumption that, you know, people who change their mind are, are flimsy or whimsical or not resolute and not reliable, whereas actually the opposite is true. I mean, obviously, there's this idea of, 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 of being rigid. It's like having a spine. You need to have a spine to be able to stand up straight. You need to know what you stand for, but your, your spine needs to be flexible. If you're, too, if you're too rigid, you become fragile. And so for yes. any of us, how do we make sure that we, we, we have things that we, we, we build our lives on values and principles that are perhaps unquestionable? Are unquestionable. They're, they're, then they're the non-negotiables, and there's a few of those for all of us that actually do matter, and yeah. that'll be your core values. So, but the reality is, viewpoints as opposed to values. Your viewpoints you need to be flexible around as you grow and as things change. Because again, if you're too rigid, rigidity and strength is helpful to, to a degree, but when you become too rigid, that's when you become fragile and and also inaccessible, which means that you're yeah. cut off from all the things that you could be learning and growing from. 
That's a great point. It makes me think of feedback responsiveness, which is a, a mm. pillar of what's called regulatory flexibility. And, and that is what's found in very resilient people. And it's the ability to, to monitor what's happening and then a willingness and ability to enhance, modify, cease, or change a strategy as you go. And yeah. if we don't have that, like you're saying, we, we are robbing a sense of our well-being as well. And, and that's the thing that I like that you just touched on there, which is viewpoint is different than a value. Uh, I think some people are not thinking and reflecting enough on their value because if they really yeah. dug deep enough, they would see that their value is actually to feel a sense of warmth and connection and to yeah. feel a sense that we, we are somehow working to make progress in some way that we're evolving. I think that is a very deep value but people don't reflect on that all the time. They, they're yes. kind of playing in those viewpoints. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, and there's a deliciousness to feeling right in your group, which I think too is, can be very addictive. Um, but where we can start to, I think, bring more into the conversation is, is a real valuing in our society, in our families, in ourselves, in what we're modeling of, of complexity and curiosity and openness. Because yeah. I do think that's where we, we are going to evolve like a, as a species. And actually, I just thought of a, a very powerful example from the book that I, yeah. I want to bring up just to leave for people for food for thought. You brought up the example of judges that were uh, granting parole. And uh, I think it's like a 35, on average, it's 35% uh, approval of parole. Uh, but when they did some more research on it, they found that um, after a meal break, uh, that that shot up to 65% approval. And so I just think it's such a great example to leave people with that there are these things where we think are must just be the way they are, or they're just fact, or they're based on total accuracy. But something like that, having a, a more full belly and not being hungry or tired can actually change someone's minds, mind in, in drastic ways. So I think it's good for us to think that a lot of what we think is definitely the right opinion or the right way to be is influenced by so many things that are beyond our awareness in many ways. So true. And it's, it's, it's frightening, but it's so true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Is there anything else like that we haven't touched on that you'd love to share with my audience? Just anything else that came to mind that uh, from, from your book or research? Like I think one, of, one of the themes that I just, uh, I think is so critical is that in the process of changing anyone, there needs to be that, that sense of agency and control. And so much of the book is focused on how do you, how do you enable people to change in a way that still feels that they are in the driver's seat, that they've got that, mm. that sense of control and choice and, you know, I think the, the truth is for any of us, this is important, but it's probably more important now than ever. And yet I, I love that principle. And it's, you know, from Dale Carnegie's book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, that, you know, someone who's, who's convinced against their will is of the same opinion still. You know, if they actually don't feel mm -hmm. like they've had a choice in the change, they haven't changed their mind at all. And so we've got to be super mindful of that sense of agency. And in the book, there's like a whole pile of strategies. There's 15 different strategies for persuading others, but they're all trying to focus on how do you give people that sense of agency or choice? Because Without that, 
even your best intentioned and your best intended efforts um, will fall flat. Great. Great point to land on. Uh, and to me, agency means psychological safety. Yeah, absolutely. Well, yep. We don't feel safe if we don't feel we have a sense of agency. So yeah, that's a, a great thing to think about as, as we you know, talk about this, this topic. So, um, well, thank you so much for, thank you. for coming on. And uh, how can people reach you and learn more about all of this? Yeah, the best place to probably go would be sort of my website is michaelmcqueen.net or there's a website for the book, um, which is mindstuck.net. And there's a whole lot of details on there, uh, reviews, articles, things that could be helpful to go a little bit deeper. So um, if people, people feel free to check out those too. Thank you so much again for being on the show. I will put your links up for everyone to reach you. Wonderful. Thanks so much. Lovely to spend the time speaking. Yes, thank you. Thank you for joining me for season four, episode two. I hope you enjoyed the episode and I hope you found something in there helpful. If there are any topics or guests that you think would be a great fit for the show, you can email me at hello at stephaniefay.com and make sure to subscribe to my newsletter. That's also at stephaniefay.com and I send updates and different subscriber-only gifts through that newsletter. And I want to tell you also about a very special program that I am offering, which will have very limited spots. This is a program for coaches and consultants and even writers out there who want to have a bit more fluency in how they speak about neuroscience The purpose of this program is to help coaches in particular and consultants and writers really carve out a niche that helps them stand out against their competitors by using very customized neuroscience. So science support that comes from my expertise, my almost 20 years of of working in this field, and how we create different frameworks. And I have very specific systems that I use with clients to help them do this and have worked with the biggest companies in the world using these techniques and systems such as Google, MIT and Stanford as well as many nonprofits and other organizations and we create different blueprints for how your services are really aligned with science and language and ideas that help you stand out in your marketing and communication and different content that you're creating and frameworks you're creating for your clients. And the really special part that I'm adding is that for people who go through this program with me, I will be offering an opportunity for you as a coach or consultant to offer personalized brain maps to your clients as a pre and post type of measurement and quantitative objective data about how powerful your service is, whatever it is that you're offering. I'll be analyzing brainwave data from your clients before they enter your program. 
offering also a midway point so that you can understand and your clients can understand where they are progressing, what different kinds of challenges they have, and then another assessment at the end, analyzing their brainwave data, which creates basically a map. And there's a lot of incredible, rich data that's available for that, where clients can just get a really clear picture that's more tangible about some of their challenges, what they're facing, and also some of their strengths. So it's a, a very special offering. It's something that I think will help a lot of coaches stand out and gain a, a huge amount of credibility and sense of authority and expertise in their field by being able to offer this. So I already have a few clients and they are going to be working with school districts to show how they're coaching and mindfulness and breath techniques and all of that stuff, how much it can improve brain functioning. So if there are any of you out there or who know of someone out there who could use a little leg up in terms of how they they stand out, you know that their service or your service is incredibly impactful. You know that it works. You know that there are results, but you also know that it could really boost your position as an authority, as a leader, by having some of this more quantitative, science-based physiological data as something you offer to your clients and that you use in your marketing as well. So if there are any of you out there that are interested or know of anyone who could use something like that, please email me at hello at stephaniefay.com. And I would encourage you to do this fairly soon because it's a very desired service and I have limited bandwidth as to how many clients I can take. It's a pretty exclusive offer and I think will be a beautiful thing to offer for people who don't have a chance to go back to grad school or to do intensive training in this kind of work. You can also just check that out at stephaniefay.com slash neuroscience and then click on the neuro coaching button that's on that page or email me at hello at stephaniefay.com. And I look forward to hearing from some of you and I'm excited to see who's out there to collaborate with and develop a partnership with in terms of this kind of work. Thank you again for joining my podcast. And again, email me if you have any other topics or questions that you'd like to ask. And thank you again for all your support. As always, I truly appreciate if you can subscribe and leave a review and share this show with other people who you think might find it helpful. Thank you, and I'll catch you in the next episode.